You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. While our world is in a season of uncertainty, we know God rules over all things. In this series, we'll explore the opportunity before us to reflect, recalibrate our lives, and return to God with all of our hearts. Hey, Sojourn East, peace be with you. And I mean that now more than ever. May the the peace of Christ be ruling and reigning in your hearts in this extraordinary and heartbreaking moment in history. If you're joining in with us and you're not a part of Sojourn East, I want to thank you uh, for stopping by. And I pray that this service would be a great encouragement for you. And I really mean that. I, I pray that it would be a source of courage and strength for you in the midst of these trying times. We are three weeks into a series responding to this pandemic that we've entitled This Incredible Opportunity. And our goal in this series is twofold. One, we want to help you think about this pandemic biblically. We want to take all that's happening in our world and lay it against the backdrop of God's word so that we might gain wisdom and understanding and know how to respond. The second goal which is tied to the first, is we want to help you see that in the midst of all of this uncertainty and in the midst of the adversity we're facing, there's also a lot of possibility. There's opportunity. Opportunity to grow in our faith, to deepen in our faith, to be refined as a people. And our hope is that through this series, we might come out of this as deeper and wiser people of faith. With that in mind, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 13. You know, with every day that goes by, it seems like we're gaining more and more clarity uh, surrounding the magnitude of this crisis, that it's a lot bigger than I think most of us thought it was going to be. But with that clarity comes a whole host of questions. Questions like, how bad is this thing going to get? How long is it going to last? What's the light at the end of the tunnel that we're looking for? How's this going to change our world? Because this is going to change us as a people. It's going to change us for better and for worse. What's that going to look like? What's life going to look like 12 months from now? There's a lot of questions. There's deeper questions too that are going to emerge or maybe they already have emerged in your life. As we watch the death toll in our country double every few days, and we're being told that the worst is still yet to come, it's not unnatural for us to ask, where where is God in all of this? Where is he? I mean, that's a big question, and it's an old question, one of humanity's oldest questions. And in Luke 13, it's one of these texts that we can go to where Jesus himself speaks directly To that question. Luke tells us there were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now it feels a bit like we're jumping right into the middle of a story, but but here's what's going on. Some people come to Jesus and they, they bring up this atrocity that had recently happened. Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, he had orchestrated an attack on some Jews who were visiting Jerusalem, but they were originally from Galilee. 
And we don't know exactly why Pilate orchestrated this attack. It was probably because he feared that they were going to start a revolt or something. What we do know is that Pilate sent this group of soldiers and they slaughtered these Jewish people in cold blood. It was a horrible act of violence. What made it particularly heinous, though, is that these soldiers attacked these Jewish people while they were worshiping at the temple. And so as their blood was being shed, it was being mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. It was a horrific and grisly scene. And in bringing this scene up to Jesus, this event to to Jesus, these people are, are basically asking him, Jesus, how do you make sense of this? How are we to make sense of this? Now, there are many in that day, many in our day, who had the assumption that tragedy befalls those who deserve it, basically karma. And I think what these people are asking Jesus is, did those people who died, did they have it coming? Was this God judging them? And Jesus replied to these questioners. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think they were worse? Do you think they were worse people? And then Jesus says, no, I tell you. He says as clearly as possible that these Galileans who died this horrific death while worshiping God, they didn't die because they were worse sinners than anyone else. He then goes on to say, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I want to unpack that in a minute. Before I do, though, I want to keep going in the text because immediately after talking about this horrific act of evil, Jesus points to a different kind of tragedy, a a random, horrible accident. A tower had recently collapsed in Jerusalem and it had killed a number of people. And so Jesus says, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all likewise perish. So we have two events. We have one that was, one event that was caused by evil within human heart and the other that was caused by happenstance. And yet Jesus, he offers the exact same response to both of these events. And in doing so, he teaches us how to think about human tragedy and human suffering. On the one hand, Jesus is teaching us that we must not over-spiritualize tragedy. And what I mean by that is that we shouldn't have a simplistic view towards human suffering and human tragedy. We shouldn't see anything, or we should be very wary of seeing any act of tragedy as God paying someone back for some particular sin in their life. Life's usually not that simple. I mean, sure, Actions do have consequences, and we often do reap what we sow. But when we look at the world, when we look at God's word, we also see that a lot of times suffering is just mysterious, and it's impossible to point to a simple cause and effect. We see this in John 9, where there was a man who was born blind, and people come to Jesus, and they say, whose fault, Jesus? Was it his fault, or was it his parents' fault? And Jesus says, neither. We see this in the book of Job, Job's friends. They're constantly trying to find a reason why why Job is going through the tremendous suffering 
that he went through. And in the end, his friends are the fools. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, don't, don't be simplistic in how you approach suffering. Karma, it's way too simplistic. The real world, world that we live in, it's much more complex than that. So on the one hand, we got to be wary of turning to simplistic answers. But on the other hand, Jesus says every tragedy should cause us to look inward at our own lives and at our own hearts. This is what he's driving at when he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus isn't saying that unless you repent, you're going to get murdered while you're worshiping or a tower is randomly going to fall on you. No, he, what he's saying is something deeper and more profound than that. He's saying that every tragedy, every crisis, and every bit of suffering that we see in our world should serve as a reminder to us that the way things are is not the way things are supposed to be. That rulers are not supposed to murder the people in their, under their care in cold blood. Towers are not supposed to collapse on unsuspecting bystanders. This is not how God created the world. To speak to the moment when God created the world in the Garden of Eden before the fall, there were no deadly viruses lurking in the shadows of that garden. All of this, all of the evil in our world, all of the tragedy, all of the sources of suffering, they all trace back to sin, which is like an invasive species that has corrupted and ravaged God's good creation. Now, at one level, we all know this. This is why we cry in the face of tragedy and suffering. Our tears are tears of protest, crying out, this is not the way things are supposed to be. But the challenge for, for many of us is that when life is going smoothly, it's easy to push, push this ultimate reality that our world is deeply fallen and, and deeply broken. It's easy to push that to the back of our minds. And it's easier maybe for us than any other culture in history because we live in a society where we can easily insulate ourselves from much of the ugliness and brokenness in our world. We can turn the channel. We don't have to see it. And that's, that's not all bad. We can only handle so much. But the challenge for us is that when tragedy and suffering do hit close to home, we often don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to respond. Well, in this text, Jesus is telling us how to respond. He's saying we should let suffering and tragedy serve to remind us of some big cosmic realities. One, our world is fallen and it is broken. Two, our world stands under the judgment of God. And a day is coming this is what Jesus is getting at here. A day is coming when God will bring his final judgment on the earth and he will rid the earth of all sin and all evil. And so one of the responses that we should have in the face of tragedy is to examine our life. That's what he's getting at. Repent. It's to take an inventory of our lives. And it's to turn away from all evil and sin and turn towards our good God.
If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've talked about the different opportunities we have in this moment. We have the opportunity to grow in learning how to lament, learning how to pour our hearts out like water before God, to not bury our emotions, to not bury all that's churning within us, but instead to, to bring it to God with honesty and hope. Another one of the opportunities that this moment has given us is it's an opportunity to reflect on our lives, to do some of what Jesus is saying here, to examine ourselves, examine how we've been living, examine our last few years, and, and to really ask the question, who do we want to become? How do we want to be different? Well, today I want to put before you an opportunity that that might be surprising to some of you, but I think one of the great opportunities we have in the midst of this pandemic is the opportunity to do some deep and intentional repentance before God. And I know that might sound strange to some of you, especially if you're new to our church, but I want to ask you to stick with me for a minute. Repentance, while it's, it's not something we talk about in our day very much, repentance is a central part of the message of Jesus, and it's an essential part of what it means to follow him. You can't become a Christian apart from it, and you cannot grow as a Christian without it. And to really step into the repentance Jesus is speaking of here, the repentance the Bible teaches us about, we have to, we have to clear away some of the misunderstandings we have concerning repentance. I think most people, when they think of repentance, they think the essence of it is groveling. They think the motivation for it is fear, that it, if we don't repent, that an angry God is going to get us. And we think that the, the end result of repentance is self-hatred. Kind of like, we know we've done this right if we feel miserable at the end. But what I want to show you from God's word is that true repentance looks very different from that caricature. And the place I want to turn is the book of Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2. This is a text that I've been drawn to over the last several weeks. And to give a little context, God's people for, for decades, if not centuries, they, their hearts had become hardened to God. Their love for him had grown cold. They were living in rebellion. And so God warns them that a day of judgment is coming. He says that some locusts, uh, a swarm of locusts are going to come and bring great destruction. And most likely, the locusts that are being spoken of there are, he's speaking of a foreign army that's going to come and attack his people. And so for the first 11 verses of chapter 2, it's just warning after warning after warning, and it's very, very intense. But then we get to, to verse 12. And in verse 12, we have one of the clearest callings or calls to repentance and explanations of repentance in the Bible. Joel writes, yet even now, even with this impending disaster about to fall, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. I've been sitting with that last phrase, rend your hearts, not your garments. Tear open your hearts. Don't tear your clothes. See, in that day, a, a common way to demonstrate your repentance 
was to rip your clothes. It was a way of showing that you were serious. And I think when a lot of us think about repentance as groveling, that's kind of what we're thinking of, that, that we, we make ourselves miserable before God in an attempt to convince him that he should forgive us. But that's, that's not true repentance. That's actually a form of, of self-righteousness. If we think that, man, if I can put on a big enough show to, sh- to, to demonstrate to God how sorry I am for my sin, then I'll have to forgive me. That's not, that's not the repentance that's born out of the grace of God. It's not repentance that's aligned with the gospel. It's a very moralistic repentance. What God tells us here is that true repentance is not about putting on a show. It's not about tearing your clothes. It's about tearing open your hearts. It's about examining our hearts, acknowledging the sin that's in there, and then bringing it to God with complete and total honesty. This is really hard for most of us. There's something about our sinful, fallen nature that makes it incredibly difficult for us to acknowledge our sins and our wrongs, not just against God, but also against one another. It's so hard for us. And we see this. We see this all the time in our world. We even see it in our own relationships, how difficult it is for us to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I screwed up. I hurt you. I sinned against you. We struggle to do it. And I think the reason why is because To do that is to make yourself vulnerable. To admit you have wronged someone is to to kind of give them the upper hand in the relationship. And we're so afraid of doing that. And so instead of being honest about our sin, instead of being honest about the way we've hurt others or we've disobeyed God, we resort to making excuses, to blaming others, We're just finding other ways to minimize our actions. And the root of all of this is fear. We're afraid of what's going to happen if we're honest. We're afraid of the consequence. What I love about this text in Joel 2, it's not just that that he shows us that real repentance, it's not groveling, it's not tearing our clothes, that really it's tearing our hearts and being honest with God. Joel also, he goes beyond that. He tells us why and why we can and why we should do that. In verse 13, the very next verse, Joel says, he speaks up, and he says, return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Now, what's interesting This is the exact same phrasing that God uses to describe himself to Moses in Exodus 34. And what Joel is saying here in essence is he's saying, remember who our God is. Remember, he's the one who parted the Red Sea and delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. He's the one who provided for his people in the wilderness, even though they grumbled against them. He's the one who made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai, a covenant born not out of law, but out of love. He's the one who forgave his people. After he'd done all of this, and then they turned and they worshiped and bowed down to a golden calf, he forgave them and relented from bringing disaster upon them. Joel is saying, remember who our God is. He's gracious and merciful. 
He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. See, the motivation for repentance that Joel puts before us here, it's not fear that a cosmic boogeyman's out to get us, but rather it's the goodness and kindness of our God. I think one of the challenges we face when it comes to repentance is we get this caricature of God in our mind that's just not true. And Joel is saying, remember who he is. And the thing is, Joel, he didn't know all that we know. He didn't know, at least not to the extent that we know, that God would step into our world. He wouldn't just engage with us, but he would actually take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he himself would take our sin along with the judgment, the just judgment we deserve because of it, he would take all of that on his shoulders so that we would find not just forgiveness, but even more, true and lasting peace with God. See, this is why I said it is, it is a misunderstanding of repentance to think that it leads to self-hatred. It might lead to hatred of sin, and it should lead to hatred of sin but it doesn't lead to hatred of self. If you survey the New Testament, one of the really interesting things to do is you read through and if you look at every instance where someone repents, look how it always ends. It doesn't end in misery. It always ends in joy. There's the joy of freedom, freedom from coming out of hiding, from dropping the fig leaves. There's the freedom of living into the peace that is ours with God. There's the freedom of being honest and there's the freedom that comes with being set free from the sins that so easily entangle us. I've found that once you name a sin, it loses a whole lot of its power over you. And what I want to encourage us as a people to do in this season is to turn to God Carve out some time this week and confess our sins to him. If you are anything like me and you spent some time last week reflecting on your life, I imagine that you came face to face with some ugliness and some darkness in your life. Maybe it's persistent sins. Maybe it's, it's unhealthy or sinful patterns of thinking where you just you kind of spin yourself out and you think the worst of God or you think the worst of other people. Maybe it's a broken relationship that you've been avoiding dealing with, stepping into. If we don't repent, if we don't bring those things to God, it's not like they just go away. Instead, we try to bury them or hide them or ignore them. And that's how they really gain and maintain power in our lives. Real freedom is naming them and bringing them to God, knowing that he is gracious and merciful. And this is something we all need to do. One of the reasons I think Christians get stuck in life is they think somehow they've moved beyond repentance. But the reality is, as long as we are on this earth, we're never going to fully move beyond sinning, which means we're never going to fully move beyond repenting. In 1 John 1, we're told that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John is saying, if you think that you, aren't, you have no sin, then you're fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. But then he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's my prayer and that's my hope for us as a people, that this, this crisis would present a great opportunity for us to be refined, to grow in holiness and in godliness, to let go of, some, to let go of the sins in our life so that we might more fully grab hold of God and what he has for us. With that in mind, let us pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.